Doctor! Put your books down and open your ears, as we're back for another episode of Pieces of Eight, the Doctor Who podcast that's totally dedicated to the worlds of the eighth incarnation of the Time Lord. Each week, we take a look at something from the Doctor Who multiverse that features Paul McGann's Doctor. My name's Kenny Smith. And I'm Rebecca Chapman. We're carrying on with our ongoing quest to talk all things McGann, whether it's his fleeting appearances on our screens or his many adventures in books, novellas, full-cast audios, short stories, comics, animations, talking books, or anything else. For our 10th episode, we're talking about the 8th Doctor on the printed page. Yes, we're delving into the novelisation of the TV movie, which was published in May 1996, just as the movie was being shown on TV. Also released at the same time was a script book, but we're not going to talk about that today. We're going to go for the novelisation by Gary Russell. Becca, was this the first novelisation of a Doctor Who that you had come across? It was, it was, it was. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm aware. Yes. Yeah, definitely different. It was nice to see the differences. It was, yeah, it was good. I'm aware that they go back to the 60s, a little older than I am. (laughs) And I, and I too. Oh, yes, yes, and you. (laughs) Yeah, because they started back, three books were novelised in the Hartnell years by Frederick Muller when they did the Daleks, the Crusades, and the Web Planet, and they were all published. And then they were republished in the 70s by a company called Target, who were looking for a new range of Doctor Who books. And then they carried on novelising from the Pertwee era onwards, and they would go back and do some hard notes here and there. And till by the time the TV show ended in 1989, pretty much everything had been, or just by the early 90s, everything had been novelised apart from the Douglas Adams scripts. So you've got The Pirate Planet, City of Death and Shada along with Revelation and Resurrection of the Daleks by Eric Sayward. And those look like gaps that would never be filled. But then along came BBC Books. They ended up reprinting these books. They actually ended up owning the Target brand. So we've been given novelizations of some new series adventures. And it's rather nice to have these done. Of course, one of the things that at the time, there was a bit of controversy when this TV movie novelization was published. Really? Oh, yes. Why? Because at the time, the book's licence for novelizations and novels was held by Virgin Books, who were by then the owners of the Target range. But BBC Books went out and published this all by themselves. And that caused a little bit of ill feeling with the licensees over at Virgin. Mm, feels a little bit naughty. It is. <laughs> but we'll find out some more about that in a wee minute or two. The book, after it was released, was also given a talking book release. And it was narrated by Paul McGann. And it sounds like this. Well, part of it does. We're not going to give you the whole book because that would be against the law. And we don't want to infringe copyright. No, we don't want to get into trouble with Paul McGann. No, no. Over to Paul. Sometime later, two porters, Pete and Ted, were wheeling Grace's mysterious dead patient towards the body room section of the morgue. They pushed it through the double doors and stopped inside a room full of metallic rectangular doors, each one leading to a cold room where bodies could be stored on their gurneys. Ted picked up a sheaf of papers. Number eight is empty. Pete nodded and wandered over to number eight, opened the door. You doing anything for New Year's Eve, Ted? The body, now stripped of all its clothes, was wrapped in a grey shroud which Ted was tying up at the back. Same as you, I guess. 
the upstairs fancy dress party, going as Wild Bill Hickok. Pete was not sure who Wild Bill Hickok was. He was sure he knew most actors and pop stars, so he just smiled. Great. He picked up a name tag and scribbled John Doe on it, before wandering back towards the body and attaching it to the dead man's big right toe. John Doe on the toe, he said to the dead body. We got a nice autopsy book for you first thing in the morning, mister. Then that gets followed by a sauna or a Swedish herbal wrap. What would be your pleasure? Shrugging at the lack of response, he glanced over at the huge clock by the door. Hey, Ted, it's one in the morning. It's New Year's Eve, 1999. Party on! Ted rolled the body off the trolley and onto number eight's gurney. He then slid it back inside and locked the door. Yeah, let's rock, Pete. Inside number eight, something very strange was happening. Normally, a dead body would lie there until its autopsy, untouched and unmoved. This mysterious body, however, began quivering. A strange glow lit up the shroud, and for a moment it seemed to melt away, revealing a starscape. Suns, moons and planets, swirling gas giants and flaming comets, as if the whole universe was encased within the outline of one man's body. Then it all faded back to normal, and the body was lying inside its grey shroud. Normal until the man's hand moved from inside the shroud and ripped it away. For a moment the revealed body lay there. Then the eyes popped open, bright eyes shining with life. Life that did not want to be shut inside whatever dark prison it was in. But it was tired, exhausted. It had to rest, gather its strength. So it waited. Pete was in his little office, munching on a vast tub of sweet popcorn and watching a really cheesy black and white movie version of Frankenstein. The monster was being brought back to life by massive surges of electricity. People don't come back to life, he muttered, taking a quick swig of cooling coffee. Then he jumped as he heard a couple of thumps. He turned. They seemed to be coming from the body room. I recently spoke with my old friend Gary Russell. He's a friend of many, many years when we're having a chat about something else. And he's going to tell us how he was responsible for the novelisation, how the whole project came about, and how he came to revamp it for this year's reprinted edition. My name is Gary Russell, and I wrote the novelisation of the TV movie. First things first, what do you remember about where you were when McGann was cast as the Doctor? When did you first hear about it? Very good question. I'd left EWM, I suspect, in all honesty, I was at home, sulking. When was he cast? January 1996. Really? Oh. Okay, so I was working at EMAP by then, because I started working at EMAP in the September. So I would probably have been at work. I was working for EMAP on PlayStation Plus magazine. Um, my boss there, Steve Merritt, was a Doctor Who fan, which is how he knew me and got me the job. So when Paul was announced, uh, I was working there and, and he and I would have gone, oh, Paul McGann. And the, the photograph was out of Paul at the um, Longley exhibition with the um, holding Andrew Beach's key to time. Uh, it's very important that we say Andrew Beach's key to time, you know, because heaven forbid, you know, you can mention that without saying it's Andrew Beach's key to time. He's very keen on that. I'm surprised it wasn't attached to all the photographs. And uh, so, yeah, I, it was just one of those things of going, yeah, that's a really good piece of casting. Um, I knew Paul as an actor 
because of, well, Hanging Gale, I think, more than Monarch and Mutineer. I remember him from Monarch and Mutineer because I was working at the BBC at the time. But the Hanging Gale is, is kind of that thing with all the McGann brothers in thing that I thought, oh, yeah, he's that guy with the long hair, yeah. And then there's his photograph of him with his shaved head. And, uh, yeah, that was a really good bit of casting. I was immediately impressed with that. I thought, yes, and he's got incredibly beautiful eyes. Um, there's something terribly soulful about Paul. Paul McGann is actually an incredibly handsome man. He's got dark hair and blue eyes, and I think that's a, a prerequisite for, for dark hair doctors, is you've got to have blue eyes. And he just, there's something about it, I just immediately went, yes, I would never have imagined him in a million years being on anyone's list. And the moment they say it's Paul McGann, you go, yep, that makes perfect sense to me. That that fits completely. What do you remember about watching the movie for the first time? Were you somebody who queued up for an HMV midnight opening and bought it? No, because I'd done the novelisation by them. So I was given a free ticket to the BFI event where they showed it, I think, two or three times in one day. And I went to the final one, the, the late the, the evening showing, which is the one that had all the guests. That's so I was there, with, you know, Barry Letts and Terence Dix were there and people like that. I think that went with Gary Gillett and a couple of other people from Marvel. So yes, we went to the BFI screening and uh, watched it there for the first time. But of course, <laughs> I knew what was coming. I knew the story. And so for me, it was more a case of sitting there and going, oh, I wonder how they did this. Oh, that's how they did that. And, oh God, I got that completely wrong. I didn't realize that's what that was. So yes, for me, I, I wasn't so much watching it in a sense of, oh, this is a new and exciting Doctor Who story because I knew it backwards. It was more a case of, ah, okay. I should have done that with the novelization. Oh, that's what that location looks like, right. Oh, he's pretending to be Jesus Christ in a, in a thing. And little things, lovely moments, like the foot coming down doing the Jurassic Park Tyrannosaurus Rexing, the foot coming down in the puddle. And I was thinking, oh God, I wish I'd known that when I did the novelization. So I think for me, my first viewing of it at that BFI, not BFI, you saying BFI, it's BAFTA, the BAFTA screening was more a case of, oh, if only I'd known at quite a lot of scenes. Whereas the next time I saw it was when it's UK broadcast, or we went around to Paul Weiss's house and on that bank holiday, Monday after Ballykiss Angel, and watched it going out again and watched it live. And that was the first time I'd watched it and thought, I'm just enjoying this. I'm just seeing this as a piece of, of good Doctor Who. And I remember turning around and everyone else was going like, ah, oh. I was thinking, that's really good, isn't it? And I'm like, and that was for something, oh, right, there are people that genuinely don't like this. <laughs> and I loved it. And I've loved the Paul McGann movie always. It's weird that there are people who don't like it. I can't see what there is to dislike about it. So, yes, I was very, very much in favour of it. Uh, no, I did not queue up at H&V to, to at midnight to buy my VHS. In fact, I don't think I bought my VHS for quite a long time afterwards. Um, is it because you were scared that at midnight the world would be turned inside out, Gary? <laughs> yes. Yes, I firmly believed that uh, May, that whatever it was, the world was going to be turned out. I, I'm <laughs> Curiously, I knew a lot of people who peripherally were involved with the Millennium Bug. And so, you know, four years later, there was the possibility of the world being turned inside out at midnight. But uh, I was glad it wasn't. Um, but we were making lots of Paul McGann jokes at, at midnight. I was on my Millennium Eve was spent on a beach in, in Devon with John Binns and Nick Pegg and Barney Edwards. And we were all sort of making jokes at one minute to midnight that the world was about to be turned inside out. And then some people we were with who were not Doctor Who fans, but realised we were being a bit sad 
I turned around and said, well, of course, it's already been midnight in Australia and the world didn't turn inside out. We were like, yeah, thanks. Thanks for sucking the life out of that joke. Miserable gits. So how yeah. did the commission come about for the novelisation? Well, now then, this goes back quite a long way. So while I was still at Marvel, editing Doctor Who magazine, I had been contacted by a man called Andy Russell, who's no relation to me at all. Um, and he was in charge of the fledgling games department, if you like, of BBC Enterprises. Uh, and they were doing this, this Doctor Who computer game called Destiny of the Doctors. And he contacted me on uh, Monday or Tuesday night, I think it was, and said, would I be interested in doing this? writing this computer game, working with, with Studio Fish. They'd got various ideas, but they needed someone who knew Doctor Who to sort it all out and to write the sections with the Doctor and write the sections with the Master and all of this sort of stuff. I was like, yes, I'll do that happily. And he'd come to me because obviously everyone at BBC Enterprises knew me because I was the editor of Doctor Who magazine. So I did that, or I started to do that, about three days after my initial conversation with Andy, I went out with a couple of other members of the team um, which I think at that point included James Russell, who also has no relation to me at all. And the day after that, I got kicked out of Marvel. So I thought, well, at least I've got some work to keep me busy until the next job comes along. So I went off and did Destiny of the Doctors, and I had an awful lot of involvement as a result, back and forth, and going in and having meetings with various people at Enterprises, as well as they would come up to Studio Fish and everything. So I got to know them all very well, because frankly, I had nothing else to do except get to know people at BBC Enterprises. So I got to know Andy quite well, and I met a couple of people in the publishing arm, and we all had a, a fairly good time. And then we did the game, boom. And then skip forward, I got the job at, with EMAP at PlayStation Plus. And the TV movie was happening, and I didn't think anything of it. And I was halfway through writing Scales of Injustice for Virgin at the time. And the phone rang at work, and I answered it. And it was this lovely lady called Rona Selby. And she said, oh, Andy Russell gave me your number. And I thought, oh, that's nice. She said, as you know, you know, there's this new Doctor Who movie with Paul McCann, which is going to be the pilot for this new series that's being made. And I was thinking, right, yeah. And she said, uh, oh, we're going to do a novelisation of BBC Books. Uh, would you be interested in writing it? And these are the sort of words that you imagine growing up as a kid reading target novelisations that one day someone will say to you, but you never believe for one moment that's ever going to happen. And my first immediate thought was, oh, so it's not going to be Virgin then. And my second thought was, how come you're not asking Paul Cornell or Terence or someone like that? Sensibly, I did not vocalise these thoughts. I merely thought them. Instead, what I said was, God, yes. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. A million times, yes. Can you come in for a meeting? Uh, you'll need to sign an NDA and all sorts of other bits and bobs. Uh, but can you come in for a meeting? And I said, yes, I can. I need to just sort this out with my boss. And she said, okay, that's fine. Give me a call back. So I went and spoke to, to Steve, my boss, who, as I said before, was a massive Doctor Who fan. And I said, um, I've just been asked to write the novelization of the Paul McGann Doctor Who thing. And Steve just looked at me and said, and you said yes. And I went, I've said yes, but I've got to go for a meeting. He said, when? I said, well, kind of is up to you. Steve just looked at his watch and went, off you go, you know, don't, don't, don't wait for us, off you go, no problem. So I phoned Rowan about, I think I went the next day, and I had this meeting with her and um, her assistant, and it was lovely. 
I realised that they had a clue about Doctor Who publishing. I remember mentioning, you know, Virgin, saying sort of, I'm surprised you, you know, Virgin aren't doing this, to which they both kind of went, who? And I was like, oh, wow, okay. And boom, I signed an NDA there and then. I was given a copy of the current filming script, which, as it turned out, was not the final filming script. I saw photographs of Paul McGann in his costume, which are the ones where he's wearing the very wet wig that were taken in uh, what was meant to be Sausalito, which is where Paul hated that wig so much. And it's it's where the hair is quite lank and long rather than slightly bouffant as it is for most of the movie. Um, and that was all they gave me. I mean, literally all they gave me and, and said, off you go. <laughs> it's, we'll send you a contract, boom. And a contract came and I signed it and, and off I went writing this TV movie book with absolutely no help or guidance from anyone. I had the script, I had two photographs of Paul McGann. And I remember phoning Nula, her Rona's assistant, Nula Bavini, and saying, look, I'm kind of having a problem here because I haven't seen any of it. I don't know what Grace looks like. I don't know what Lee looks like. I don't know what Eric Roberts as the master looks like, all these things. And so they arranged me to come back in and I was allowed to see one sequence from the TV movie which was the film, which is the sequence in the back of the ambulance where the master sprays Grace, hisses at her and sprays the venom into her face. And that gave me Paul McGann, Grace, Lee and the master. And I thought, well, that's better than nothing. Uh, and the only other time I had to go back to them and say I had this problem was the script was utterly unclear. It just says the master puts the doctor in a device that makes his eyes stay open. And I thought, well, I have no idea. And that's going to be important. So I said, I need to know what that is. I can't really gain from the script what effect it's happening and how it works and how it's clipped on him. And then they faxed through to me at, because at, um, <laughs> I'd signed this wretched NDA. They had no problem sending faxes to, to my work address, which could have been read by anyone and probably were. And they faxed over to me in this this picture of the, the sort of clockwork orangey style thing that was attached to the doctor's head. It was a design sketch by Richard Hurdlin. And that was helpful. And then I delivered the book. And I was very proud of it. And Virgin were very cross with me because it delayed Scales of Injustice quite badly. And they were pissed off that they weren't doing the novelization. And I, to this day, maintain that if Virgin had played their cards right, they would not have lost that license. Because what the intention was, from the BBC's point of view, was this book, this novelization, would spearhead a whole range of Paul McGann novels. They weren't interested in past doctors. That's why they made me take all the past doctor stuff out. They, they had no interest in previous doctors. As far as BBC concerned, the only thing they were interested in was Paul McGann going forward. Everything from past doctor who didn't interest them at all, and they didn't want references to it. They weren't going to get involved with doing it. You know, I think DWM was about the only thing still going that was talking about past doctors. Boom, and Virgin kicked off such a fuss about how wrong this was and how dare BBC Books, you know, who are their license holder, do this novelization and not offer it to Virgin who had the exclusive right to do books, brackets, it's not an exclusive license at all. And that made BBC Books sit up and go, okay, that's interesting. Why are you so fussed about this? And as a result, they took Virgin's license away from them and then did past Doctor Books as well. And if Virgin hadn't kicked off about that, I think they'd probably still be doing Doctors 1 to McCoy now but they they didn't they, they were very silly if memory serves did gary gillett perhaps help you out with some descriptions of the console room and the cloister room yes that's a very good point because i said to gary you've been there but even then 
Yes, he did, but they weren't enormously helpful. I mean, he said, you know, it's dark and there's lots of bookcases. And I remember Gary saying to me, that's right, I'm glad you said that. I remember Gary saying to me, there is a section that the, the, the console room, it mirrors the, cons- the sides of the console. So for every console side, there is a, there is a room opposite it. So, you know, there's a library on one and maybe a kitchenette or something like that, you know. And he told me the the scope, the size of that console room, because obviously you don't get any of that from the script. I think probably in my head, I was probably imagining it looking like the TARDIS from, you know, Great Show in the Galaxy. So, yes, you're right, Gary Gillett and his overseas. And he helped me out a bit about San Francisco as well, uh, because I'd never set foot in San Francisco. And... He was able to say, I think, I don't know if he'd ever been to San Francisco, but he's certainly been over to Vancouver. So he knew what they were recreating. So he was very helpful with, with a lot of that as well. I just wish he'd taken photographs because that would have been three times more helpful. <laughs> but, you know, he gave me lots of good descriptive stuff. And then years later, I went to San Francisco and went, oh, that's where Sausalito is. Oh, off the Golden Bridge. Bridge is huge. Oh, that's where the hospital was meant to be. Oh, that's where... Itar was meant to be. All these things, which for the new version, the novelization, I was able to tart up and, and, and get the geography accurate and refer to San Francisco as a bay and not as a river, which I did in the original version and got <laughs> severely told off by lots of San Francisco natives from. So yeah, doing the revised version was quite nice because it was I was able to to correct mistakes like that and take out some of the Britishisms that I'd given Americans to say and make it slightly more authentically American. And yes, the chance to get the geography of, of San Francisco a little bit a little bit better. Yeah. How did the whole reissue come about? I don't know. I mean, I do know. They're doing target books. I remember saying when they did the Battlefield, Varos and Visitation reissues, I said, well, that's a bit silly. You should have done the TV movie and then you get a better Paul McGann one as well. And I don't know whether that sort of made them go, oh, yeah, we could have done that, couldn't we? But I remember saying that to Albert. And then two years later, I get an email from Albert saying, you know, we want to reprint the TV movie. Do you want to take the opportunity to update it? The opportunity is there if you wanted to update it. And, you know, they knew I'd had to cut a lot of stuff out with past doctors and Ace and all this sort of stuff. If you've still got that information, do you want to put it all back in? And I immediately went, yes. And I was very happy to do that. And I sort of sat down there with Steve Cole and worked out what needed to be tarted up and what didn't need to be tarted up. And he made a couple of little suggestions because I based part of the ACE thing on Pete McTie's season 26 a little advert for the Blu-rays he'd done with the Doctor knocking on the door of a charitable earth at the end. And I put that in. I put that sort of reference in. And Steve took that out and said, unfortunately, that's contradicted by Sophie's Childhood End book, where she says she never saw the Doctor again. So we kept the charitable earth bit and the the idea that she had the the suite of offices up there. But we took out the reference to the Doctor knocking on the door with his umbrella on. So little things like that were able to go in and, and, you know, that's an expanded version of what I originally wrote. And I still had a lot of the stuff from 1996 by some complete fluke of a miracle. I'd uploaded them to an old website of mine that was long since dead. But my friend Kathy Sullivan showed me how to access this stuff from 1996. And some of it had survived, not all of it, some of it had survived. So there were huge chunks of this original novelization that had been cut out that still existed and I was able to access them cut and paste and go, woo, 
And so that was nice. And I found working with the publicity people at BBC Books really a pleasurable experience. They were all very nice. And obviously working with Steve Cole is always a joy anyway. And Paul Simpson did a brilliant job on proofing it. And he came back to me a couple of times with, you do realise you've got them turning left here. But a minute ago, they had to turn right. And I was like, oh, thank God you spotted that. Uh, so, you know, it's a nice collaborative effort to make a good book. And then there's Anthony Dry's stunning cover, the original of which is is sitting over there in a frame that I'm looking at at the moment because everyone thinks it was done in a computer. And it's not. It's a drawing. She then scanned in and coloured. So I've got the original, which she was very kind enough to give me. Uh, I love Anthony's work. I think it's fantastic. I think it really suits these these target reissues very nicely. And it's a nicely packaged book and it fits in with the range. And I now have a book with a Target logo on the spine. I always thought having the novelization of the TV movie with the BBC Books logo was pretty damn cool. But having that same book with a Target logo on the, on the spine, that's the coolest thing in the history of the universe. I mean, I still love the fact there's the, the reference to the lectern from St. Christopher's Church was in there that made it to the original because it's yeah. so subtle that they never thought... That, all, all the new adventure stuff stayed. The Sheldon Boniface reference stayed. The reference to David McKinty's Final Frontier stayed. The, I can't remember what that was. It was one of the alien races with the Master of the Encounter. That's right, the sun, that's it. So all of those things stayed in there. I didn't take any of those out. I added a couple more in, made Romana the president of the Time Lords this time. Um, so it tied in with Gallifrey. Uh, so, you know, I just being a naughty boy and, and having fun. And uh, as always, when you're a naughty boy having fun and nobody tells you off, uh, you end up enjoying it enormously. So it was a good experience to come back and look at that novelization and tweak it. And it's not a rewrite, but it's a, it's a good old fashioned tweak. Yeah. I've done a George Lucas on it, but not made it shit. <laughs> you know, I just love the fact that it's there. And um, the only the disappointing thing is that you've not been able to do the signing stuff properly. Yeah, yeah, that is a, that is a shame. Though, I will say, uh, whilst I don't particularly like the fact they stuck, I think they should just put the book plates in the book and give them to people, but they actually stuck them in the books, which I think is a bit off for people who didn't want to have them glued into their books. But I think more people, as a result, got access to those signed books for this run than they would have done if we just done the straightforward normal signing at Forbidden Planet in London, which was the original plan. Because that would have been, you know, a couple of hundred people queuing up on the day, if you're lucky. And then a pile of books sat in the corner, probably 50 more would have got signed. This way, there were 600 that got signed. I did them all in different coloured ink. So if you've got a gold or a bronze one, you've got the rarest ones. And the green's quite rare. And I think the blue and the red are the most common. And and more people, therefore, had the opportunity to buy those, those signed books by everybody. Yeah, that was that was a fun fun thing to do. Yeah, next time I see you, I'm going to bring my copy along, and you can sign it in an ultra rare color that nobody else has got, like an ultraviolet one or infrared, so that's just super secret. Blood. But who's? I'll just open up a vein for you and sign it in blood. That's literally putting your heart and soul into a book, Gary. I <laughs> yes. Brilliant, Gary. Thank you so much for your time and chatting with pieces. My of pleasure. Life. Thanks to Gary for taking the time to speak with us. And he's not the only one who's told us about his work on the reprint. Yes, that's right. If you've seen the Target edition of the book, rather than the old BBC Books version, which had a photographic cover of Paul McGann, then you can't fail to have noticed the rather stunning artwork by Anthony Dry. Oh, it is stunning. But because we like to be completists, we've recently had a chat with him for Pieces of Eight. So I'm Anthony Dry, and I was the illustrator for the TV movie Target novel by Gary Russell. 
So we always start by asking our guests, what do you remember about Paul McGann being announced as the Doctor? I don't remember much about it. I remember, so I was studying away from, I was living away from home then. I was in college in Swindon, in Wiltshire. And um, I'd kind of, I'd left Doctor Who behind a little bit, to be honest. I'd hold my hands up here. I'd sold all my books, all my target books, apart from a few, and uh, I'd kind of moved on. And then it come back on, I'd seen it in the Radio Times, and uh, I watched it when it come on live, and I thought it was quite good, to be honest. And uh, But he never he never followed it up for some reason. I don't know why. And then it just went on a massive, you know, a massive break again. But that's, that's, the, that's the only thing I remember about it, really, at the time. I thought he was a brilliant doctor, to be fair. And, and I, I think he's one of the better doctors out of the whole... I'm not just saying that because we're on this podcast, but we really missed out him not having a TV series. And even having a retro suspected TV series would have been, I think, amazing. When I seen that first, I think he had that small episode before Dave was up there. And I just thought that was brilliant, that little episode. And how much we've missed out not having him on the screen is just like, I don't know. I just, it's. Yeah, I can't explain it. It's just a massive miss, I think. Yeah, I suppose that there must have been a bit of pride for you in, in having a, a fellow Liverpudlian cast in the part. It's, there's something quite yeah, cool about yeah. that. I know I feel that with Peter Capaldi. Yeah, yeah. Well, I met I met him um, at one of the Stockton conventions many years ago before when I was just starting off working on Doctor Who. And, um, and he's a big Liverpool fan. I'm a big Liverpool fan. We got talking for you know, a good 10 minutes or so. And we got, we he'd agreed to come down the pub to watch the match because Liverpool were playing that day. And he wanted to come and watch. So we were going to go down and have a pint. And then he just couldn't get away because the queues were just kind of building and building. Liverpool got beat anyway that day, 3-0. <laughs> so he probably, it's probably wise. But he was, he's a really nice guy, really down to earth. And um, yeah, as, as a lot of us scousers usually are, kind of quite open to kind of chats and, getting along with people. Absolutely. That's the uh, two Liverpool fans on here then. Uh, the other one is uh, is here, aren't they, Miss Chapman? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Great. We didn't have a good season last year, but, you know, we'll hopefully we'll bounce back this season. Yep. Oh, that's the, yep. That's the only football chat that's allowed in this podcast now because obviously <laughs> by the time this goes out, I, I'm hoping it's all over. Um, but we'll say no more, no more. So do you remember when you watched the TV movie for the first time? Was that at home or did or did you buy the video? Yeah, well, I was living I was living away from home and just watched it on the TV when it was broadcast live. Yeah. And I was sharing a flat with uh, another guy who was studying with, and he, but he wasn't much of a Doctor Who fan, so he kind of just... He sat there and watched it and shrugged his shoulders. But, I, I mean, I thought it was really good. And it was nice to see some some good special effects as well. I think it was the first time we'd seen some, you know, I, I know the special effects aren't the greatest and I still love the old who, but the special effects were like, you know, a real step up, wasn't it? And I was I was looking forward to seeing more of it. Just never got to see it. It's such a shame, really. It is. It is. It's heartbreaking. So how did the commission to do the new cover for the novelisation actually come about? So... So I've already, I already did one set of targets a couple of years ago. And funnily enough, I emailed the BBC about doing more target books years ago and, and said, you know, whether, you know, I did put myself forward. I did say I, I'd love to do some. I was doing work for them for other things. 
and I, but I just thought this, there's a market there for them still. There's people will buy these books, and they just weren't interested at the time. I don't know. I don't know why, what the reasons were for it. But then I got an email out of the blue saying, you know, we we'd like to um, we'd like to strike the target novels back up again, and um, you know, your name was put forward, funnily enough, by Russell T Davis, which was really nice. And so I, I got those those that set, and then he approached me again saying, you know, we. Been so successful the first set, we've got a second set in the works, and uh, I was surprised to see the TV movie on there. I must admit, because it's already been published. But I think it's um, it's turned out a really nice book in the Target style. I started working on it, I started sketching little thumbnails for that one, and then um, I made the mistake of kind of coming away from it. Obviously, the pandemic hit and everything got delayed, and things were up in the air, you know, where the, the book's going to get made and with bookshops ever open again and all this kind of thing was, was talked about. And by the time I'd started doing the book covers again, I hadn't actually come up with a real concept for that one. And so it was the last one that I did. Uh, I'd had a little chat with Gary originally about what he'd like to see and he, he kind of likes the Sea Devils cover from the, the 70s. And so I, I'd started to kind of think about working an idea using that as a pastiche but then in the end i come away from that and i just thought i'll just do um i'll just do a nice portrait on the gang with the master and the tardis i just thought it just might be a bit more striking it's not the easiest book to do it cover for because i think everyone has seen every photograph to do with the tv movie that's ever been released there's not a great deal of mcgann reference out there you know what i mean from from, from tv series and I couldn't use anything from Day of the Doctor because he was obviously too far into his incarnation. He had to be specific to the TV movie. So, so yeah, it was um, it was the last one that I did, and it, it turned out really well. And Gary was really pleased with it, and I was I was happy that he was. That that's the main thing I think. Getting it right that the author really embraces it and feels proud of it is that's that's when you know you've kind of hit the mark. Yeah. So it's a good job you liked it because if you didn't like it, <laughs> you'd have to live with it, wouldn't you? Yeah. Your work's very distinct, recognisable, and beautiful. I mean, I can, I can tell one of your know, one of your pieces a mile off. How do you actually create an image from scratch? I mean, for example, with the TV movie, when you've selected the sort of images you want to do, how do you actually do it to get all, to all those wonderful dots and just to bring it all to life? So it's so it starts off as little thumbnail sketches, which will be really rough. So my background is in graphic design, and I did used to do a lot of painting and stuff when I was a lot younger and freehand drawn. So I'll still do elements of that. So I'll do little thumb sketches of basic ideas that come into my head. And then what I'll do is, once I've kind of got a composition there that I'm happy with, I will go and reference. I mean, I've usually got an idea in my head of the types of poses that I'd, I'd want. I've worked on the DVDs and things over the years, and I've seen a lot of the photographic assets that have been produced. You kind of get an idea of what is out there and what's available. So I tend to work around that as much as I can. I, what I'll do is I'll make a photo comp then. So I'll hack photos out and, and things like that and stick them all on a canvas and see if it's going to actually come together, if it's going to work with those references. And then what I'll do is I'll take it back offline then and then I'll sketch a tighter composition. So the, the Photoshop composition will just have probably the images of the actors on and not much else. But the sketch will then pull it together with bits of space and, and all kinds of other elements and things which will make it into a, a tighter composition 
And then I send that to the BBC. And then the BBC will say yes or no. And sometimes they come back and you want changes, which is fine. And then I take it into Adobe Illustrator. And this is where I get a little bit frustrated with the online fandom because a couple of times on Twitter, people go, oh, it's, a, it's Photoshop filters. It's, you know, you just run it through, a picture through Photoshop and turn the dark machine on or something, which you can't actually get, to be honest, uh, either. But I have to painstakingly put the dots down one by one on the... Um, I'm on my work computer now. If I was on the other computer, I could show you. Like, I could just quickly show you, but... Yeah, it's um, I have to put the dots out. It takes a, it takes a quite a while to do. To be fair, because you kind of zoom in, you put the dots in, you zoom out. Because it's what it's like oils, isn't it? When you when you come up to an oil painting very close, it kind of it, it doesn't form as well. When you step away a couple of meters, it forms. The same with stippling. I'm kind of want to hide into nothing in a way because it's you know it's it's never going to be as great as Achilles. It's never going to be as great as Achilles, and I don't try to do I don't try to match it because it's just impossible there's so much legacy there and I love Achilles's work and I, I wouldn't you know I've tried to make it my own so the dots are a little bit big and I've tried to kind of stylize it a bit my own but normally I would have just my older vector artwork was kind of shapes and shadows but they really wanted to go back to that target look so they wanted the, the, the dots so that's why I tried it that way and um it was difficult at first, but um, I've kind of got the hang of it now, doing it that way. It doesn't always work out. Sometimes I need to change things. Sometimes things go wrong, and I have to reassess what I'm doing, as as with any artwork, piece of artwork. But um, but yeah, it's an interesting process. It's a shame we don't do it traditionally anymore, really, but the industry's moved on quite a bit, and there's kind of... There's not really the time there for traditional artwork, in, in that sense because you know firstly everything has to look like the actors as much as possible because of all the image rights and stuff and if anything needs to change the turnover time's easier because it's digitally done so you can kind of I can put things on layers and if they're not happy with something the BBC I can always like remove it off and do another one and it won't destroy the cover as in if I was painting it I would have to actually sort of tip exit if you ash it out and you'd have to repaint again or you'd have to kind of patchwork it which could be problematic so i think everyone's had to just embrace digital artwork going forward and i think a lot of them i think like the likes of andrew skeletta have kind of dabbled in it now and the likes of uh, the great alistair pearson as well dabbles in it now and again i believe that gary's got the original art in the house somewhere he's he's very proud of it he has yeah i um i always try to send it all the other all the other um, authors are going to kill kill me now aren't they <laughs> when i say this i always try to send it out to them so i sent it out to stephen moffat to russell t davis and i sent one to gary as well and gary's interested in collecting the originals and stuff anyway and i'm only too happy to send it out i think i only did i'm, I'm not sure but i think i only did one version of the sketch I'm, i might have done a second version just for a tweak but he's got the original one that was signed off by the BBC. It's just a, it's just a scrappy piece of A4, really, with some scribbles on it, like, but um, and references. I always put the references down, colour, where I got the photo from, all that kind of stuff. And then I delete that when I send it to the BBC. So I'll, I'll take it into, I'll scan it in, take it to Photoshop, and I'll just delete all the, the notes off it, and then send it to the BBC so they don't get distracted. 
So yeah, he's got that. Yeah, he, he, showed, he sent me a picture of it framed, which was nice. Fantastic. But I'm going to get all the others now. Go. Where's mine? Where's Where's mine? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll not tell them. We won't tell if you won't tell. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, you did a brilliant piece for Doctor Who magazine with the second season of Lucy Miller audios. Oh, uh, yes. What do you recall about that? Because obviously we love Lucy Miller. Oh, yeah. Um, around that time, I was doing bits of work for Doctor Who magazine on and off. I think I had like a little regular slot doing the audios anyway, the big Finnish audios. And he just asked me to do like a synopsis piece for the McGann audios. And I, to be honest, I didn't listen to any of them. So I had to kind of go away and do a little bit of digging, a little bit of reading up. You know, I learned of like the Sobek, is it the Sobek Crocs or the Sobek Crocs? That's um, the Skull of Sobek, yeah. I yeah, I thought that'd be quite interesting to stick them on there. And the Autons were in there as well, so that was good. So it was something for me to feed off. And it was just a case then of like sketching. I've got the rough sketch somewhere. I can probably send you the rough sketch if I can dig it out. Just pulling together a composition that had those baddies with Lucy and um, and the Eighth Doctor on there, and then you know submitting it to DWM and seeing whether they like it. I originally did it on pure white, and they put it onto like a darker background, which worked, but I don't think it worked as well as the white. I think the white was kind of it made everything jump off off the page a little bit more. But it was uh, that was when I used to do it in, as I've seen, the shadows and the curves, so you can see it's different. There's no dots on there; it's kind of like shapes. You learn to do the vector shapes to produce shadows. So yeah, that was an interesting that was an interesting one, but they were very happy with that and I think it's it turned out quite well in the end. Oh it's lovely. I think it's it's a beauty because I remember you sent me the white one which I used in a fanzine many moons ago. It was a great piece of work. Really great piece of work. And you also did one wee mini McGann as well for the back of the target storybook as well. Marrying them all up yeah. there so they're all in there. Uh, I have to change I, I kind of tried to change. So he was he was using the one of us is out of the later episode before Day of the Doctor, and then I, I tweaked his hair a little bit to try and make it a little bit longer. People notice it, fans notice it straight away, don't they? They're just straight on to that. And so they're all going, oh, is, that, is it the McGann from that episode? So I wonder what the story is and, and all that. But um, yeah, I think, um, yeah, there's not a great deal of reference out there for Paul McGann, and that's that can be really tricky if you're being asked to do McGann, because everyone's seen those photos of him, promo stills. But, um, and you have to kind of work like that because unlike comic artists who, who, who just work off their imagination and it gets a kind of a likeness of Paul McGann, the BBC demand that it looks like Paul McGann and it has to look like Paul McGann. If it doesn't, you have to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> Anthony, thank you so much for joining us today on Pieces of Eight. It's been a pleasure. No problem. Yes, thank you so much. So thanks again to Anthony. Of course, this book has the honour of having been an audiobook twice over, as we had the original reading from Paul McGann. And then there's a new version with the revamped text that Gary was talking about earlier. And it's been read by our friend Dan Starkey. Oh, now, you've heard so the McGann one, haven't you? I have. I have. It's so weird hearing that man read the lines that he said in the movie with a completely different inflection. <laughs> It's just like, you're saying the right words, but you're not saying them right. What are you doing? <laughs> it's exactly it. It's so bizarre. I mean, it's wonderful. I think it's a, it's a great reading from McGann. And I haven't heard Dan's yet, but that is one I will be picking up when I see it in the shops, as I just love it. Mm. And I'm a completist and I need to have all things with McGann's face on them, if I can help it. But yeah, I, I think it was, it was a great reading. And yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed hearing it. 
but it's very interesting the differences between the original and the reprint because obviously we've got mentions of a charitable earth and what East got up to briefly after leaving the Doctor and there's a few references to the new adventures in there I mean there's something subtle like the lectern at St Christopher's Church in Chil- the village of Childen Boniface which is from the new adventures by Paul Cornell but it's nice and subtle but obviously that slipped past the BBC books people <laughs> yeah it, it is great I I love it we will be back next week for another Pieces of Eighth, when we're going to be chatting about a BBC Eighth Doctor novel for the first time, as we speak with author Colin Brake about escape velocity. We'll ensure that we don't take a flight to the edge of space with Richard Branson before then, so we'll see you soon. I hope not. <laughs> Bye-bye! <laughs> Bye!